Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Timothy, uh, chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. If you are using the Black Pew Bible, then that is on page 1,896. 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. Thank you for remaining standing for the reading of God's word. Once more, this is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorant and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving a full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray once more. Heavenly Father, we come before you now humbly as people who have been called out from this world into a relationship with your Son, Jesus Christ, that as we hear the preaching of your word, that you would make sure your promise, the fact that when your word goes out, that it does not return void, but it accomplishes that which it purposes. Father, I pray that your spirit would help me this morning, especially as I'm overcoming a cold and some chest congestion, that I'd be able to speak speak clearly. And I pray that for my brothers and sisters in Christ, as well as myself, that we would hear your word clearly, preach to our hearts, and that we would follow through with the convictions that we may experience by applying your word in our lives. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So Andy had a favorite toy. Uh, This favorite toy was known as the Sheriff Woody. And Woody was an awesome toy because he had this awesome cowboy hat and yellow plaid shirt. But the most awesome part of Woody is that he had this pull string. And when you pulled the string, he would say, reach for the sky, or there's a snake in my boot, right? And Woody was a great toy, a great companion. And Andy would take Woody everywhere. And Woody was the hero of every imagined conflict that Andy could come up with. Woody was Andy's most treasured possession. Well, that is until another toy came along. Another toy known as Buzz Lightyear, Space Ranger. 
Now, Boaz had the polish, the shine that Woody didn't quite have. In fact, he even had three buttons on his chest that when you hit one of them, he would be able to say, to infinity and beyond. And he had this cool laser light that once you hit a button, it would shine. And also cool wings that would allow him to fly. And so Andy spent a lot more time with Buzz. And Buzz eventually became his treasured possession. And Andy put Woody in the toy chest with all the other toys. Because Buzz was now his number one. Andy set aside Woody for Buzz. And how often do we, and even myself, do we set aside the gospel because something new has come along? Now, it may not be a new toy. It might be a new relationship, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a spouse, a child, a hobby, maybe even a job that the gospel begins to lose some of its polish, some of its luster, and we lose a sense of its tingle, a sense of its excitement when we first believed in it. And the gospel then gets set aside, maybe not in a toy chest, but in the recesses of our mind. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, how then do we treasure the gospel? How do we look upon the gospel with the same excitement, the same awe, the same tingle, the same wonder that we once had? How do we treasure the gospel? Now, to answer this question, we're going to turn to the testimony, to the life story of a man who never lost the tingle. A person who never lost the excitement of his conversion of when he first experienced Christ oh so long ago on a road to Damascus. This man's name is Paul. Now, Paul also didn't want other churches to lose that excitement either. That's why he writes to his understudy, Timothy, in the church of Ephesus to remind them that one of the most important pillars of truth is the gospel. The idea that we are saved by grace through faith. And we can never lose that pillar of truth. So turn with me uh, to 1 Timothy, which is in our Bibles, uh, which was just recently read for us by Laney in chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. That's where we'll be this morning. Now, in this morning's message, we're going to address three things. First, the problem. Why is it that we set aside the gospel? The second that we'll be talking about is the solution. What do we need to know in order to treasure the gospel? And the third thing is the application. How then do we act in order to treasure the gospel once again? So problem, solution, application. So first, the problem. Why is it that we set aside the gospel? Why is it that we put the gospel in the recesses of our minds, and that the gospel no longer is exciting to us. All right, to answer that question, I want to share with you a story and two observations. So I have a very young cousin that I used to play with. His name was Kyle. And one of his most favorite things to do was to play Nerf guns. And he had a huge collection of Nerf guns. So we go upstairs to his room, and we would see his 
armory of Nerf guns. We had semi-automatic ones, automatic ones. We had big ones, small ones, ones that shot darts, ones that shot balls. And so he would say to me, okay, Uncle Henry, now you choose your Nerf gun. So of course, logically, knowing that I want to win, you choose the biggest one. So I look for the biggest Nerf gun that I could find with the largest ammo capacity that I could find. And then as I grab this large Nerf gun, Kazo, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. I'm gonna change the rules. I'll add a rule. You can only choose from the small ones. The ones that can only shoot one dart at a time. So I'm like, okay. So I choose one from the small collection, while he, of course, chooses the biggest one in his collection. All right, then he says, all right, I'm gonna take my position on the second floor. Henry, you take the position on the first floor. Okay, so I'm like, all right. And then the objective of the game is to shoot each per person with 10 darts. All right, okay, got it. And so then he says, all right, start. So, you know, being the adult I was, I take my small Nerf gun and charge up the stairs. Now, as I try and bound up the stairs, I say, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. I change the rules again. So now you can only go up five steps of the stairs. He removed a rule. And so let's just say whenever I play Nerf guns with Kyle, I lost 90% of the time. Now, I learned a very important lesson when playing with kids. Kids will always change the rules so that they can win. He added rules so he could win. He removed rules so he could win. Now, you may think this is such a trivial thing, a Nerf gun war with your young cousin. How is that even relevant to the gospel? But I have to ask ourselves, how often do we add rules to the gospel? How often do we add things so that we could win, so that we could be justified before God? And how often do we remove rules so that we be justified before God as well? Now, you may be thinking to yourself, well, I don't add rules. But if you look in the letter of 1 Timothy, that's one of the problems that they face, is that these false teachers were adding things to the gospel. Now, if you look with me in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, you begin to see this. And Pastor Jason preached on this last week. Let me read it for us. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now you're going to be wondering, well, what are these myths and these mythologies? Well, if you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4, you get a hint of this false teaching that was going on, how these false teachers added to the gospel in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, which I'll read for us as well. It says, Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So Timothy was struggling in a church where false teachers were adding to the gospel, saying that you needed to abstain from marriage, abstain from these foods, in order to be saved, in order to have a relationship with God. And oftentimes, we may unconsciously say, well, if we read our Bibles, if we share the gospel with people, if we go to a small group, if we come to service, God must be really pleased with me. 
right? And that is a form of legalism. Now, legalism is when we do things in order to make ourselves look good before God. Legalism has two problems, if you think about it. If you add rules to the gospel, it lowers the standard of God's holiness. Whereas God's standard was once here unreachable, we've added these rules so that the bar is lower so that I can do these things. I don't drink, I don't curse, therefore I am holy as God is holy. Problem number one with legalism. We lower the standard of God's holiness. But then the second problem with legalism is that you no longer need grace, right? Because I can do it on my own. If I try hard enough, if I strive long enough, God's grace, God's gift, I don't need that because I can do it on my own. Grace then in legalism becomes unnecessary. And those are the two issues with legalism. That's what happens when we add things to the gospel. But then the second challenge, the second problem is just as bad. When we remove laws that God has already given. When we say, because we're saved by grace through faith, God will forgive me. God will forgive every transgression and sin that I do under the earth because I know that when Christ was nailed on that cross, I was forgiven. And that sounds ridiculous, and that's something that Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. Grace that isn't valued, that isn't worthwhile. And Paul writes about it even in his letter to the Romans. What then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. And when we do those things, when we add laws or remove laws from the gospel, we tend to forget how lost we were. We forget how much we needed God's grace in order to experience salvation. Because we decided that I can take control over my life Jesus can take a back seat as I go on this journey, and if I need him, I'll call on him. I have his number on speed dial. It's this idea that we forget how lost we were, and that is a fundamental problem when we set the gospel aside, when we forget and no longer value Christ. So then what is the solution? What do we need to know to not set Christ aside? What do we need to remember in order to be people who continue to value the gospel as something that is beautiful, as something that is wonderful, and that we would see the gospel again with awe? And the solution is that the church reminds us God found us. That the church is a place, the community of gathered believers is a place where we remember and we recollect and recount how Christ saved us from our sin. Now, Paul sees this in this particular section that was read this morning. We see how God sought us, seeked us out, and how God rescued us. So how did God seek us out? 
How did God search for us? Well, we see this when Paul expresses his thanksgiving to God for finding him. Uh, Look with me at verse 12 in chapter 1. It says this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. And Paul gives thanks to God because as he reflects back into his life, he's in wonder that God would call him into faithful gospel service. That God would select him out of all the apostles to preach the gospel to these Gentiles who do not know Christ. And he just sits back and wonders, how could this be? And the reason why he is so astounded, the reason why he has such wonder that God would count him faithful is found in verse 13. Because it says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, that he spoke poorly of the name of Jesus. That when the name of Jesus came up in conversations with his friends, it would be spoken with derision. That Jesus, that no good carpenter from Nazareth, said he was the son of God, that's blasphemy. There's only one God. And Paul would never acknowledge the deity and the person of Christ. And not only was he a blasphemer, but it says a persecutor. And we see in, the, in Acts, when Luke recounts the story of Paul, Paul is known to take letters from the Jewish leaders to track down Christian fugitives in foreign cities, to capture them, imprison them, and bring them back to Jerusalem for fates unknown. And not only was he a persecutor, But verse 13 says, an insolent opponent. Other translations render this phrase, insolent opponent, as a violent person. That not only was his attitude towards Christ evil and his actions towards Christians contemptible, it began to shape and form him into a person of violence. And Paul wonders, God, you would call me your opponent? your enemy, a rebel, to now be your greatest proponent, your greatest champion? It makes no sense to me. And that's why Paul gives God thanks. And not only that, he says here in verse 13, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. That because of his disbelief in the gospel, he acted in a ways that didn't make sense. In verse 14, it continues, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That God searching Paul out resulted in a revelation of God's grace. Grace being the idea of unmerited favor, a gift that we receive from God because we couldn't do anything to earn it. And in verse 14, it has this word overflow. This idea should bring to your mind an image of a cup overflowing, brimming with water. That it was more than this cup contained, that this is the type of grace that Paul received. 
And as a result of receiving that grace, he received two things. First is faith, a new belief, a new understanding of who God is, a God who is holy and gracious and steadfast in love. But also, he received a new love, a love for Christians that he once persecuted. And isn't that true of us, that when we receive the gospel and we look back in our lives, we wonder, how could God have saved me? Because I was so far from him. And the things that I did were so contemptible in his eyes, that they were so evil and despicable, not even worthy of a relationship with him. And yet God would save me to change my beliefs and to give me a new love, not only for Christians, but for all people. That this was the transforming power of grace when God seeks us out. Now, not only did God seek us out, but God rescued us. You see, God's rescue is part of his mission. That God isn't just out there to find you in the wilderness and say, hey, I found him. But it was to find you and bring you back home and to have a relationship with him. And we see that God's mission is to rescue sinners in verse 15. It says this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, some people think that Jesus Christ is a wonderful example of moral living. He always made the right decisions. But if Jesus Christ just came as an example, then his example mocks us. Because I could never do what Jesus did. Have you transformed bread and fish for a crowd of 5,000? I certainly haven't. Have you made the paralyzed walk? I certainly haven't. Now, if you're a doctor, maybe that might be an exception, okay? But, you know, I haven't done the things that Christ has done. And his example mocks me saying that I can't even do what Christ did. So if Jesus is just a perfect moral teacher, it makes us look very poor when we are compared against Christ. But see, Christ's mission wasn't to serve as an example. Christ's mission was to come to rescue sinners like us, lost, wandering and groping in the darkness, to have a relationship with the God of light. And not only did he rescue us, which Paul says in verse 15, of whom I am the foremost, now, the question is, does Paul see himself when he compares his life, his behavior to all the sinners of the world? I am the worst, because I'm sure that there are other people who are worse than Paul. But when Paul looks upon his life, this expression of whom I am the worst is an expression of surprise, of unbelievability that I would be saved of whom I am the foremost. But God's rescue mission is also one of patience. We see this in verse 16. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, 
Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Now, what is God's patience like? I mean, have you ever experienced a patience that has such a long fuse? I mean, if you look back in the Old Testament, when Israel sinned against God by creating that golden calf, God was a little upset. I mean, so upset that he told Moses, I'm going to destroy all of Israel and begin anew with you. But then Moses said, no, God, if you do that, what will the Egyptians think? What will the other nations think? Because you are a God who is steadfast in love, a one who is patient. And God says, you're right. And that's why I'm going to continue bearing with this sinful people. Or if you look at the book of Judges, these people didn't know how to learn from their mistakes. I mean, with every subsequent generation, it was a new idol, a new worship that took them away from God. And yet God would always raise up a judge to deliver them out of their troubles. You would think if I were God, I would have given up and started up with a new group of people because these people were disobedient, not for 10 years, 50 years, but almost 400 years. You had to put up with these disobedient people. But God was so patient, waiting for them to come to repentance. And how patient is God with us to wait for us as we go through life, times and seasons where we say, God, we don't need you. I don't need you because I've got it under control. To come to that point where we say, man, there's nothing I can say, nothing I can do, nothing that could take me out of this miserable situation that I find myself in. God, help me. And God isn't one to turn his back and say, well, if you look at your past track record, why should I intervene? Why should I come into your Why should I actually save you? But God says, yes, my child, I've been waiting for you. And for those of you who have not placed your faith in Christ, I would encourage you to examine what Christ said about himself and determine, is it really true? Because God is patient. God is waiting for you. And while you may have time, time is also limited. So we're talking about God's patience. But not only do we talk about God's patience in his rescue, but the fact that God also deserves all the credit, that he deserves all the glory for his rescue of sinners. And we see this in verse 17. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Then Paul's doxological statement in verse 17, he addresses God, the king of ages, the God who has always been and always will be, and attributes three qualities to God. Immortal, a one who lives forever. Invisible, one that we cannot see. And the only God, the only true and living God. And what does Paul ascribe to God? Honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And this is the eternal life, 
that we experience, to glorify God not only in eternity, but even in the present, even in the now, that as we treasure the gospel, we begin to live in greater dependence upon the Spirit so that we would conform to the character of Christ. You see, it's interesting how when children are born, when they're really young, the baby oftentimes resembles one of the parents. You can kind of see hints of it. But as the child grows older, you can definitely see which parent the child resembles. And isn't it like our Christian walk, that once we first place our faith in Christ, we may look like Christ yeah, just a little bit. But as we continue to walk in dependence on the Spirit, we begin to be more and more like him. So that when Christ returns, we will be fully like him. Now, so this is what we need to know. That the church reminds us God found us. The solution to our problem. That we forget how lost we were. Now, the application then is what? What are we supposed to do to remember this? To recall this? And I have to say that the application is this that we have to rehearse God's search and rescue, that we have to retell it, to remember it, to relive it, reenact it, that we have to relive, to rehearse God's search and rescue. And there's two ways that we can do this. We can rehearse it in worship service, and we can also rehearse it to others. So let me talk about the first one, that we rehearse it together in the worship service. Now, as we gather together from 9.15 to 10.45 on Sunday mornings, the worship service is designed in a way so that the elements remind you of the gospel. So let's go over kind of some of the elements that we participated this morning and see how each element contributes to our understanding of the gospel. So what do we begin our worship service with first? It was a call to worship, right, given by Daniel. And a call to worship reminds us that we are to turn away from the world and to focus this time in a worship of God. It's to recalibrate, reset us as we sit in this auditorium, in this sanctuary, to worship God. Then, what happens after the call to worship? We sing worship songs. Now, it's interesting because I tell my wife all the time that people tend to remember worship songs more than they remember sermons. That when you leave Sunday service, you're going to be humming the worship songs all afternoon rather than talking to your family about the points of this sermon. And I don't take offense at that because I know that it's our inclination that we enjoy music. And that's why music shapes our theology, right? It shapes what we believe of God. And worship songs, after the call to worship, should create within us a greater awe of who God is because he is so holy. He's lifted up. He is a God that is unlike us, and that when we begin to think about that, it should begin to stir within us this idea, wow, I really do not measure up to this perfect standard. I do not measure up to this God that I worship. Because then what is the next element? The next element is confession. 
that we confess together as a congregation that we have failed to be the witnesses that God has called us to be, that we have snubbed our coworkers, our fellow students, our fellow brother, our sister in Christ, our children, our spouses, that when we realize who God is, we realize how small we are and that we would say, woe is us, God forgive me. And then we move into a time of pastoral prayer. A time where we intercede and ask, God, help us, because we can't live according to these standards on our own, that we need your help. And after this time of pastoral prayer, we move into a time of offertory, a time where we give of our financial gifts, treasures, to say that, God, you alone deserve my allegiance. You alone deserve my loyalty, and I am going to recommit my life to you because just as in the book of Leviticus, the priests would offer whole burnt offerings for Israel to dedicate themselves to God, saying that, God, you are my God, and I will follow no other. And then after offertory, we have scripture reading and a sermon a time of covenant renewal, a time where we are reminded what we are to do as God's covenant people. Now, at this church, after the sermon, we typically have communion once a month. And the communion, the Lord's Supper, reminds us that we are a body of Christ, people who are united under the headship of Jesus, and that we have no issue with our brother and sister in Christ. And that's why we partake of the elements. But not only do we partake of the elements to say that we have no conflict and no issue with our brother and sister, but it's also that we look forward to Christ's return. That we are not satisfied with this world because we are looking for Christ to bring in his kingdom. And we will eat this bread and drink this cup until he comes. And then after the communion, we have doxology, where we praise God for what he has done to us, and then the benediction comes where a blessing is said over the congregation, not just to say, oh, this is what I get from worship service, to God to bless me, because the blessing of God is not just to bless you, but it's to be a blessing to other people. That the benediction is a blessing upon God's people to empower them to go out from these doors to be a witness for Christ. And all these different elements, the call to worship, the worship songs, the confession, the pastoral prayer, the offertory, the sermon, every single element should remind us of the gospel and how much we need God. So if the worship service rehearses within us the gospel, then we need to be here for all of it, don't we? That we can't just come in halfway. Because then we don't really rehearse the entirety of the gospel, do we? And I know, coming to worship service at 9.15 is challenging. It's a spiritual battle. Because on Saturday night, you want to finish that board game, that Netflix show, that movie. You want to finish this, because you know Sunday morning, come to worship service, come to Sunday school, that's half of your Sunday. That's half of my leisure time. That's half of my relaxation. So I want to get in all of it that I can on Saturday. It is a spiritual battle. Right? And I have to confess to you, on Sunday morning, 
when my alarm goes off at 7 o'clock in the morning, I just want to pull over the sheets and say, please let me sleep more. Because I know on Monday I have to wake up at 5 to work out with my wife. And there is no other sleep-in schedule. Right? This is the day to sleep in, to rest. It's a spiritual battle to toss off those sheets, to get ready for service, to be here on time. Because it's important to rehearse the gospel as a congregation and as a body. Not only do we rehearse it in worship service, but we also rehearse it to others. I have to say that we can rehearse the gospel to other believers. And one of the greatest blessings I have, I think, as the English minister is to be able to be on Rice campus and to spend time with our CCF students, especially this semester. Because every time I've gone, they've had one of their cell group members share their life story. And it's always encouraging to me to hear how God has radically transformed their lives, especially during these years in college. And how important is it for us to rehearse the gospel, to share it even with our brothers and sisters in Christ, to encourage them. And not only to rehearse it to believers, but you are to rehearse it to unbelievers. So when people ask you, why do you spend so much time at church and with people who are Christian? That you rehearse your story again to them, to share with them the hope of the gospel. So rehearse it at church, rehearse it with people. So to summarize kind of this message this morning, we talked about the problem that we have when we set the gospel aside is that we forget how lost we were. And the solution that we need to know is that the church reminds us God found us. In the application, the thing that we might want to consider doing is to rehearse God's search and rescue. Now, I wanted to close with a particular testimony that I heard uh, this week, a testimony that I thought was quite stirring. If you follow Jason on his Facebook feed, then you would have saw that he posted this article from the Gospel Coalition. It was a testimony of a gymnast, uh, name is Rachel Den Hollander, who was abused by a USA gymnastics doctor. His name is Larry Nassar. And in his, her testimony, she rehearses the gospel to him despite the atrocious, evil things that this man has done. And it blew me away because if I were in the testimony, I would have had not so nice things to say about this man especially after all the evil things that he has done. But I want to read you an excerpt from her testimony. You have become a man ruled by selfish and perverted desires, a man defined by his daily choices repeatedly to feed that selfishness and perversion. You chose to pursue your wickedness no matter what it costs others, and the opposite of what you have done is for me to choose to love sacrificially no matter what it costs me. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom, and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all of its utter depravity 
and horror without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. If the Bible you carry says it is better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and you throw it into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble, and you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you speak carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And don't miss this. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet, because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found, and it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me though I extend that to you as well. So rehearse the gospel in your life. And hopefully, maybe all of us will be able to treasure it, just like Rachel did. To be able to forgive others, even when they don't deserve forgiveness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a God who is infinitely worthy of our worship a God who is holy and set apart and so different than us, with a standard of perfection that we can never hope to attain or achieve. Yet, God, you have sent Christ, your Son, to die on a cross for our sins so that we might be able to treasure the gospel message that you loved us so, that you would search us out and rescue us. And this is a core pillar of the truth of the church, and we pray that as a body of believers that we would never lose the awe, the tingle, the excitement that comes with the gospel. And Father, I pray for those of us who perhaps have lost that feeling of excitement when it comes to Jesus Christ, and that I would ask that you would help us recover it again. And for those who have yet to still find it, we pray that your spirit would convict them that this is the day to place their faith in Christ as well. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.